Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, I am joined by Daryl Atkinson and Jeremy Travis. So Daryl and Jeremy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So I'll begin by sharing Daryl's information and then I will share Jeremy's as well. Daryl is the co-director of Forward Justice and Daryl was the first second chance fellow for the U.S. Department of Justice. And prior to the DOJ, Daryl was the senior staff attorney at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. And before that, he served as a staff attorney at the North Carolina Office of Indigent Defense Services. So there's also more information. You can find his background on the Square One Project's website. Now, Jeremy Travis is also joining us. And Jeremy is the executive vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. And before Arnold Ventures, Jeremy served as the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice for 13 years. Prior to John Jay, Jeremy was a senior fellow with the Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute. And Jeremy's career also includes government service as deputy commissioner of legal matters at the New York City Police Department, special advisor to the mayor of New York, chief counsel to the House Subcommittee on Criminal Justice, and law clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she sat on the Court of Appeals. And again, Jeremy also has more background and uh, you can find his full bio on the Square One Project. So Daryl and Jeremy are two of the experts from Columbia University Square One Project, and they just published a paper on the power of parsimony to transform the justice system. So we're going to start at the beginning for our listeners who are not familiar with parsimony used in the context of criminal justice. So Daryl, would you please define parsimony and also give us an introduction and context for using parsimony in this legal context? Sure. When we think about this concept, you know, we're really thinking about how do we formulate a tool of restraint on state power? And when we're thinking about the state, we're talking about, you know, government that controls our lives. And traditionally, you know, we have this concept of a social compact that government enters into with its people, right? So, Emily, you know, you give up a certain amount of your autonomy. You can't have your own fire department. You don't have your own police department. You don't dispense justice yourself. You give up a little bit of that autonomy to the government for a litany of benefits, rights, and privileges that they give back to you, namely safety and security, right? And when that social compact is broken, we have ceded to government that you all have the authority to levy sanctions if someone breaks the social compact and violates one of our laws. Jeremy and I felt it was critically important before we even got into the substance of the definition of parsimony to really make clear that that arrangement, those mutual obligations where government promises to protect and offer you the ability to thrive and people promise to not have their own brand of vigilante justice, that social compact has never existed for all groups of people. 
So, for example, indigenous Americans, African-Americans who were brought here through chattel slavery never had a ballot agreement where government was offering them safety and protection and the ability to thrive. And the people were giving up their individual autonomy. And because of that, we got to start from square one, have a reckoning where people can believe that this arrangement is real, that is fair, and that there's equity involved in it. Once that happens, then now what's the proper restraint tool on government in thinking about when and how to intervene in the people's lives? And this is where the definition of parsimony comes in. And we defined it as government should only utilize the lightest intrusion into someone's liberty interest to achieve a legitimate social purpose. To do more than that, we submit is to cause harm and could even be defined as to cause violence or to cause pain. And so that's kind of the operational definition that we believe you can apply to a myriad of circumstances to help achieve more more fair and equitable system. Thank you for that. In your paper, you applied this principle to three specific areas of practice, though, as you were just saying, I think that if I'm understanding right, this can be applied to more than just these specific areas. But would you please tell us about those specific areas that you've called out in your paper and their potential impact on the criminal justice system? Let me start by just reaffirming what you just said, Emily, which is, as Daryl mentioned, this is a concept that applies to any exercise of the coercive power of the state under the color of law. And it could be applied to policing practices. Stop and frisk is a classic example. It could be applied to prosecution decisions. It can be applied as well to probation and parole practices. Any instance in which the state exercises coercive power over one of us under the color of law and justifies that as being based in the social contract like this is what I'm authorized to do, says the state, because you gave me this power, that this is a limitation. Parsimony is a limitation on state power. And that's why we titled the paper, The Power of Parsimony. It's a very powerful concept because it prizes liberty, values liberty. And when you would then ask, what are the practices of the current criminal justice system that could be challenged using the principle of parsimony? Uh, There are a number of them, but in many ways, The preeminent one is the sentencing practice, sentencing policies of our country. So we talk a lot about mass incarceration in America, how we've quadrupled the per capita rate of imprisonment, how we stand apart from the rest of Western democracies in the way we use prisons. That's all true. But if we ask, how do we rein in that exercise of state power? Are there values that are important to us as Americans that would rein in that exercise of state power to deprive liberty of so many millions of people who have been in and out of prison and jail, parsimony is a way of thinking about it. So we would then apply the test. Is it a deprivation of liberty? Absolutely. Sending somebody to prison is a deprivation of liberty of the first order. It's short of capital punishment, but it's a deprivation of liberty that we need to pay attention to. And if we value liberty, we should pose a very strong challenge to this deprivation of liberty using the principle of parsimony. And then we say, if it's a deprivation of liberty, is this deprivation the lightest touch, the least restrictive available to us to achieve a legitimate social purpose? And then when we go through this exercise, as legal scholars have done for 
decades in this country, but we've lost sight of this, we would say, well, what are the legitimate social purposes of prison? Well, we think about it as crime control, as incapacitation, as deterrence. So then we have some empirical questions about whether that actually works. And what we know from the literature, certainly very long sentences have very little, if any, public safety benefit. And even mandatory minimums have very little, if any, public safety benefit. And this is a finding of the National Academy of Sciences report. So we would end up looking at prison sentences through this lens and asking really challenging questions about the social purpose of imprisonment. So if it's not for deterrence, if it's not for crime control, is it for rehabilitation? Well, that's an odd way to help somebody find their way towards a better life, to put them in prison, which is so destructive of the human condition. Is it for retribution? Well, there's an interesting discussion that we could have about whether some crimes are so serious that they require some time away from free society. But in any event, the system would shrink enormously if we were very serious about parsimony. And we would end up with with the search for alternatives that are more effective. What is more effective in terms of producing safety? Well, it's not putting somebody in prison necessarily. What is more effective in terms of rehabilitation of people who have health problems, mental health issues, or substance use uh, disorders? We would have very different approaches. What's more effective in terms of promoting well-being within families and networks and communities? Uh, certainly not taking somebody away for years and then sending them back. So. Parsimony places a burden on policymakers, on society, on government to be more creative, to shrink the use of the coercive powers of the state, starting with prisons and, and but others, uh, and to activate and fund other types of responses to legitimate social needs that we have for safety, for well-being, and for finding ways towards more peaceful resolution of conflicts. Yeah, I guess what I would add to, you know, we also looked at the concept of collateral consequences and applying the principle there as well. And for our viewers who may not be familiar with that particular term, collateral consequences are civil disabilities that are triggered because of your contact with the criminal justice system that happen largely outside of the criminal context. So you have both direct consequences and these indirect consequences. Your direct consequences are your fine, your imprisonment, any probation. These indirect consequences are things that happen outside of the sentencing and court context largely, and they can impact your life significantly. So you can lose your right to vote. Your driver's license could be suspended. You could be denied federal benefits like food stamps and access to public housing. And for me, this was real up close and personal. In 1996, I was convicted of a first-time nonviolent drug crime. I was given a mandatory minimum, one of those really determinate sentences. I had to serve a certain amount of time on that mandatory minimum. And when I got out, I found out that my driver's license had been automatically suspended. I was denied the right to vote. I couldn't get federal financial student aid. And there were a litany of employment and occupational licenses that would be really, really hard to get. And so now let's go back to our framework. Is there a liberty deprivation? Absolutely. If I can't cast a ballot in the jurisdiction that I live 
and vote for elected officials who make the rules that dictate my life, my liberty has certainly been deprived. And now is that liberty interest to serve in a legitimate social purpose? I, I can't imagine in the National Academy of Sciences, their report on the causes and consequences of mass incarceration pointed this out, that divesting people of fundamental aspects of citizenship serves no legitimate purpose but to make them feel alienated and outcast in society. There is there's no better, there's no more antithetical way to welcome people back to society, which fundamentally is happening when people re-enter from prison or jail. There's no more antithetical way to say, oh, you're a part of us, but you can't participate in the civic process, right? To me, that serves, and I think for many people, that would serve no legitimate social purpose. And the means to even achieve that purpose, we don't even have to interrogate because the, it fails on the first prong. And so it's an example of how we can really put to the test why we are doing the things that we are doing. What purpose are they serving? Are they effective in helping our society thrive? and helping people be as successful as they possibly could be after contact with the criminal legal system. You know, solitary confinement, government calls it restrictive housing. Once again, for folks who may not be as familiar with the practice. So when you're in jail or prison, if you're deemed a threat to yourself or to others, or for other administrative or disciplinary reasons, you can be put in what's called segregation. That means you're put in a tiny little cell. My experience, I was in solitary confinement for about five months of my incarceration. I was locked up 23 hours a day. You got out one hour a day for recreation. You took a shower every other day and you had no human contact. Correctional officials will say solitary confinement is necessary for the worst of the worst to manage custody and control of our facilities. And that's a, you know, there may be some room for debate on that particular question. But where there is no room for debate are cases such as Alfred Woodfox, who was incarcerated in Angola and spent over 33 decades in solitary confinement. There is no legitimate social purpose that that serves as both on a societal level and on the individual level for the human being. There's been numerous studies after studies that talked about the deleterious effects of long-term solitary confinement and how they contravene basic tenets of international human rights law. We don't even allow that to be done to prisoners of war, I believe, under the Geneva Convention. So it is, it is a very brutal and rigid practice. And once again, we can ask ourselves, is this obviously it's a liberty deprivation? We can debate the legitimate social purpose of it's necessary to maintain custody and control. But 
The second prong, is it reasonably necessary to achieve that purpose? Do you have to have people locked up in tiny little boxes for months and years on end to maintain the custody and control of your facilities? I would dare say you don't. And that's where, once again, it would fail the parsimony test. Mm -hmm. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for sharing your personal experience and also that example and helping us remember to humanize this conversation as well. I mean, sometimes, you know, as a society, it's a good time to have these discussions because there is movement in the right direction by all means. And people are evaluating that in this remembering to humanize it just adds the level of urgency that I think we all need to. And I think, I think we've all gotten a little taste of this too with COVID, right? So people have been restricted (laughs) to their homes past 15 months. And think about all of the uproar and tumult that that has caused in consternation. Now imagine being restricted to an eight by 11 room Mm -hmm. in your home. And you're only let out one hour of a 23-hour day. That's solitary confinement. Yeah. When you say it like that, it it really is hard to understand why that's happening. So thank you for sharing those specific practices with us. And again, as you said, that this can be applied to other areas of criminal justice as well. So uh, taking it back to a higher level now, I may be missing something, but this seems to me, this concept of parsimony, to be a new addition to the discussion around criminal justice reform, though we've certainly talked about sentencing reform and the collateral consequences of conviction. And I know the criminal justice section talks about solitary confinement and its place in the criminal justice system, but parsimony as a legal concept to address these and potentially be a solution, this seems new to me. So what has been its reception well, what's interesting about the idea of parsimony is that it's new and not new. The concept, as we trace in our paper, goes back to you know, legal philosophers, uh, uh, Bentham and Kant, and more recent legal scholars, Norman Morris, Michael Tonry, the American Law Institute, Model Penal Code. There are articulations of this principle that are foundational in our jurisprudence, and even within our Constitution. You know, what is the limitation on excessive bail and fines other than a statement of parsimony? What is the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment other than a statement of parsimony? So parsimony is new and not. It is definitely, however, a new uh, contribution to today's conversation. And we hope, of course, as the authors of the paper, that people find it useful. The paper, which comes out of the Square One Project at uh, Columbia University, which is a group of people who've gotten together over the past three years to reimagine justice. And there are many other papers I commend to our audience, but the paper starts with the assumption that the country has gone way off course. And some of our founding principles, some of our ideals, we haven't lived up to them, but they're right there in our constitution, our declaration of independence, and some of our criminal justice principles have been abandoned particularly the last 50 years, as we've entered what Bruce Weston and I call the era of punitive excess, when we have just gone crazy as a country with our need, where it comes from, I don't know, but this need to punish, this need to hurt people because of their offenses. So parsimony is a way of dialing all that back. We know that this is obviously not going to happen automatically. This is a long-term game. 
but this is also a way of looking to the future and saying, if we were to reconstruct in this era when so many people are talking about abolition and transformation, if we were to reconstruct an approach to crime, what are the principles that should guide it? Well, there are many. Human dignity is front and center. This concept of proportionality is right there. The notion of citizenship is right there. But parsimony as a limit on state power should always be a guiding principle for the way we think about the response to harm, because what the response to the crime does is to activate, as Daryl described at the outset, this social contract where we have given to government this awesome power of depriving one of us of their liberty. And we can't give that power away without saying, and here are the limits. You can't do this excessively. You can't do this in ways that denigrate the human spirit. And you can't do this in ways that diminish liberty unless you really say that this is not the only way, but this is a, a reasonable way to achieve a legitimate social purpose. So those two parts of the test really call into question everything that we're doing now in this country, but they also set a, a framework of aspirations for what we might be moving toward in this time of very deep reform where there's calls in the streets for a different way of thinking about the justice system. So it's being received well. We hope that it helps some people think differently and creatively and sets a, a vision for the future. Well, thank you for that, Jeremy. And thank you, Daryl, for all that you've shared. As we wrap up our conversation for today, and listeners, we will link to the paper that we've been discussing in our episode summary, so you can find it there. But before we wrap up our conversation today, I want to give both of you a chance to give any final thoughts to our listeners. We began with Daryl before when we began the conversation. So Jeremy, why don't you go first and then we'll let Daryl go after that. We live in an era where there's just a lot of turmoil. And some people look at that turmoil and think out of this chaos, only terrible things can happen. We have the pandemic, we have the calls for racial justice, we have the you know, extreme inequality in wealth, we have marginalized populations that are not able to survive basically. So it's a very difficult time made worse by COVID. There's another way of looking at this that is more optimistic, however, which is to say over history, times like these, that seems like so fraught at the moment, actually have embedded within them the seeds of something very different in the future. And we've seen this again and again, and interestingly, often out of pandemics. So the question that we face right now is whether in this moment of justice reform, justice transformation, the call for racial justice, the movement for black lives, people in the streets against police violence, movement against mass incarceration, bail reform, all of this happening at the same time just holds the seeds for a new vision. And the power of parsimony, as we think about it, is that it both allows us to critique everything that's going on, and particularly the era of punitive excess, and ask ourselves, how did we come here? This is really, in some ways, frightening to see how much state control has been exercised over people, particularly over black and brown people. And to ask at the same time, if we want to see a way forward as we sit here on the knife edge, where it can go in either direction, what are some aspirations that we might hold on to for how uh, the world could be different and how we could respond to harms, particularly community level harms, in ways that are healing, ways that promote human dignity, ways that limit the powers of the state, the coercive powers of the state, and build up 
a legitimate social contract founded on a notion of racial justice. And parsimony, we think, could make a contribution to that forward-looking process of envisioning a different future. Yeah. We've just done so much harm. We've really done a lot of harm. Not just, I mean, we can talk about the cumulative historical harm that you know, parsimony, before it can be applied, we demand a reckoning around that cumulative historical harm. So there could really be a valid agreement between the state and all, all members of the population. But then even contemporarily, we've done a lot of harm in the last 40 years. And what the power of parsimony represents it's not going to fix the past harm, but prospectively going forward, we would have a restraint tool to check us to make sure we do not continue down the road or return to the road of punitive excess that Jeremy and Bruce so eloquently described. It's not a cure-all, but we do believe it could really be our legal Hippocratic oath that this is the principle that we operate from, and it should help guide us to ensure that we do not do any more than what's required to produce the given set of results that we want to see in society. And unfortunately, we haven't practiced that way in the past. We've done a lot more than was what was necessary to achieve those good results that we want to see in society. So I, I'm hopeful that it can be embraced by folks at all levels, whether you're a practitioner, whether you're a policymaker, or you know an activist in the street, that this can be used as a tool of restraint to make sure that we don't do too much because we've been doing far too much in the past. Wonderful words for consideration. So thank you again to both of you for joining us today for this conversation. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. <laughs>